What's up, Rob? Not a lot. I'm just, uh, <laughs> so you, you threw me off before starting <laughs> referencing a certain leaked video of a certain Canadian rapper, which I have not looked at, but I think I've, I think I understand the gist of it just based on the various descriptions that people have relayed to me. Mm-hmm. I have no plans on looking at this Yeah. information. I, I'm good to go, I think on that, but. I feel like I have a pretty good idea in my mind of of what's what's going on with that. So what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, you man, say it's that. a. Yeah. I just assumed that it was the the talk of the town in, in Canada. Like this is a big story. This is a big Canadian news story. I guess. I don't know. I'm gl- listen. I'm just glad everyone's having fun. You know. Yeah. It, Enjoy. It seemed, it seemed like a fun distraction i guess from (laughs) otherwise depressing news yeah speaking of distractions uh from the depressing grim reality uh that we always have to follow day and day we got the uh the super bowl coming up yes i'm so this is this is my favorite holiday yeah i'm counting it as a holiday it's my favorite one yeah and it's my first super bowl since because since becoming a, a official NFL fan. That's right. I usually I watch the Super Bowl every year just because I do enjoy watching the game usually and eating chicken wings or nachos or whatever it is. But I actually did watch many many NFL games this year, so now I feel somewhat more connected to it. I have been trying to perfect making chicken wings at home. I've been doing the same thing. If you get them delivered, it's just it's just like soggy by the time it gets to you. But I have been reading and studying and learning and refining my recipe to try to get the perfect of, I'm not going to deep fry at home. That just seems like a disaster waiting to happen. But in the oven, I'm trying to get the perfect crispy on the outside, juicy on the inside chicken wing. And I think I'm there. And this Sunday, I'll I'll find out. I practiced the, the conference championship weekend. Friend of the show, Brett Ehrlich, came over and I made like 15 pounds of wings. Oh, wow. And bought some sauces from my favorite wing spot in Ohio, a bunch of different flavors, and made a bunch. And I was, okay. like, almost there. And I th- I'm hoping that this Sunday it's perfected. It's interesting because we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but I've been doing the same thing. I made chicken wings last night. <laughs> okay. As an experiment to try and see, because I'm going to have, I think, a few people over to my apartment to watch the the Super Bowl. And I was thinking about that, but I think... I think your method, what you're describing, is probably better for like a group environment, the crispy wing with the the dipping sauces. Because I was go, I made like a sauce. I made some like saucy, gooey wings last night for dinner, and they were very good. But I feel like that's maybe not the best, the best snack for like a group setting. If everyone's got all sauce all over their faces and mouths and stuff, I feel like that's <laughs> that's not what you want, you know. 
but it was well, very good. It was very tasty. I, I tossed say. them. I, I, we, we were saucy. We were saucy boys. Okay. All right. You bake them first. Well, you can go over the specifics offline, but there's a there's a method to it. You really gotta you gotta dry them out overnight in the fridge with baking powder and salt. Coat them in baking powder and salt, a mixture. You could do, also do spices and herbs and that kind of stuff if you really want to. I like pepper, garlic uh, powder, paprika, some other yeah. stuff. But you want to dry them out overnight and then cook them on a wire rack in the oven, turning them every 20 minutes. And that's how you get that really crispy outside. Okay. So mine were more just, I didn't really go for the whole crispy angle i just made them in the sauce i just coated them with the sauce giving them some spices and some seasoning soggy boys oven in the oven they were all, and they're very good they're gooey spice sweet spicy is that what you go for you go yeah. for like the hot sweet sauce exactly yeah i've been kind of perfecting nice. my own little my own little sauce recipe actually there is a sauce that's native to dc called mambo sauce i don't know if you've ever had it um, no it is a very much a DC like corner store thing, but they've started to sell it online. You can get it anywhere, and it is. I think it might be what you're looking for if you want to mix up your spicy sweet sauce. You should okay. check it out. It's it's really good. All right. It's like a red sweet little bit, a tiny 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 kick, but it's fun. It's a good sauce. I like inventing my own kind of sauces. I'm like a mad scientist in there. I'm throwing all kinds of different. <laughs> different getting out all kinds of different jars and bottles okay random right. stuff uh, don't let me stop you from innovating <laughs> the, the game is totally secondary it's like yeah yeah the, the actual game who cares um yeah the the various sauces though these are this is uh really what we need to be focusing on definitely um no but so that's the thing i'm, I'm looking forward to the game though whatever whatever snacks i ended up uh, going with i'm sure it's going to be enjoyable you know, maybe maybe might have a beer or two. Watch that; it's gonna be fun. And I'm gonna watch it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get brainwashed by Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. That's the thing; I'm gonna have a whole, just a little bowl of Pfizer vaccines as well when my guests come in because I've been brainwashed by this. Yeah, so oh boy, I'm just gonna be injecting myself and my guests left and right with with vaccines. You hate to see a psyop work. And we're going to vote for Joe Biden. We're going to all going to go afterwards and, and drive down to the United States and get some sketchy fake IDs and fake social security numbers, just like old times. Yeah. Do you still have the box of SSNs from 2017? Getting the crew back together. That's right. Yeah. I want you to put word out there that we back up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we got to get InfoWars on this. Yeah, we're, we're going again. <laughs> we're doing it again. So that's it. And that's um, and uh, it's all because of Travis and, and Taylor. So You're rooting for? No, I don't I don't have a, a huge amount of investment in the game. I think like we were talking about, I, I get tired in any sport when there's any team that's just really good uh, every single year. It's just annoying. Um, the 49ers were my, my team growing up in the Joe Montana and Jerry Rice years and the Steve Young and Terrell Owens years. I tried to pivot more to the Bills this year. We all know how that ended, so I feel like I can comfortably root for the Niners in this one, and I'm hoping that they, they pull this one out. Ugh, it's I really don't care who who wins. I guess I'm rooting for the Niners, but I don't feel strongly right now. 
it'll once I figure out how I'm betting on Sunday, that's gonna determine who I root for. Once I fig, once I see the final like day of lines and spreads and player props, then I'll have a better idea of who I'm rooting for. <laughs> so this is gonna interest you because I've been I've been strongly considering maybe just dipping a little toe into the whole world of sports betting. Oh, really? I've been trying to resist. And like, I've had this really nagging, terrible idea over the last couple of weeks. Like maybe uh-huh. what if I, what if I did though? What if I just tried it a little bit? Uh-huh. What about just a little bit? You know, I feel like I can, uh-huh. I feel like I can responsibly do a little small amount of sports betting just as a little treat. I don't need to turn into Harvey Keitel and bad Lieutenant or whatever, shooting my dashboard when the game goes badly or, or what have you. But I think I can do a little small amount of sports betting without ruining my whole life, possibly. Yeah, if you're only betting on the Super Bowl, you don't have a gambling problem. Like, that's that's it. Well, you're, you know, be, but maybe... You're fine. There's other things as well. well maybe like I could possibly... a Tuesday night NBA yeah, game. <laughs> exactly. I watch, I watch hoops. I know about that kind of stuff. Uh, just be careful. Never bet more than you can afford to lose. Yeah, I think that's my that's my going to be my ethos here you know just pay maybe every week i got a little 20 20 bucks something if i lose it okay that's unfortunate we move on though we just move on we're not going to the cash machine we're not we're not taking out more we're not doubling down we're not okay i just need to get that 20 back then i'm going to stop none of that stuff i think i can do this i think i can be responsible with this these are famous last words before your life is just absolutely ruined (laughs) I'm going to do the next podcast episode in like a a box. Yeah, I live live in a cardboard (laughs) box now because of this. This is good. Just, uh, yeah, I I don't, I don't foresee you developing a problem if you're, if you're going in with that much caution and remain, remain operating with that much caution. I think that's going to be my, my mentality here. Uh, what's going on in the show today? This is kind of a little surprise for me. Yeah. Yeah. Surprise episode. I So I talked to Kyle Chaka. He is the author of the new book, Filter World, where he explores and contemplates the ways that algorithm-driven platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Netflix, Spotify, and the list goes on, how all of these platforms are flattening our culture, how it's filtering everything into what the platform thinks creatives should prioritize and he explains and shows and illustrates how this has long-term serious consequences for creativity for art for society i finished this book last week and i have not been able to stop thinking about it it is it is such a thought-provoking book the observations that he makes and he goes into and describes are things that i've seen or experienced over the past god however many long years we've been dealing with these algorithm based platforms but really couldn't put my finger on i couldn't really identify beyond just like that's weird you know just little things like oh this movie uh card on netflix that's not the poster for the movie that's something else that's a picture and that picture seems kind of like a weird choice well it's what it thinks it knows about you and really the illusion of personalization that all of these platforms build themselves as offering with their algorithms really doesn't do that at all. It's all just a facade. 
So that and a whole lot more what we get into is a really, really fun conversation, but I can't recommend that book enough if people are frustrated with how monotonous and redundant and derivative social media and content on the internet has become. Yeah, that does sound really interesting. That's something that uh, I think everyone uh, should uh, be thinking about. It's kind of interesting, right? The way that like, you know, we think about the idea of AI, like that, that really has kind of like become this kind of cultural um, touchstone that we're often discussing and talking about with chat GPT and, you know, these, these, image creation programs and this kind of stuff. But I think we kind of underestimate the way AI has been kind of like changing our society for a while now. Like as long as these social media companies have been fine tuning these algorithms and delivering content to people based on these algorithms, like there's kind of a, there's an AI behind that. That's like uh, had a lot of really profound consequences in our society. Like you look at the, like the, the right wing pipeline on YouTube that we've talked about a lot before and the way people have been funneled into these wacky conspiracy worlds because these algorithms are like determining what kind of content it thinks they want to see. And that gets more and more extreme and that delivers them more, more controversial and more, uh, uh, bizarre and, uh, more controversial, uh, content, you know, it's like, uh, I think that's kind of, we don't think about that enough, the way that these things have kind of been here uh, around kind of silently in the background uh, for now several, you know, for, you know, over a decade, I would say, and having really kind of causing these big profound shifts in our, in our, our, our society and the way we consume this kind of content. An example that we talk about in our conversation that I realized after finishing the book was how often these platforms push you to consume similar things. I mean, for me, it's not, you know, white nationalist content. Unfortunately for people who go start to go down that rabbit hole, that's what it's going to give them. But for me, it started with what's the best restaurant, what are some of the best restaurants in LA? And now my YouTube algorithm is just all food videos with like a sprinkling of GTA weekly updates for the online mode because I'll go out of my way to watch those. And it got so frustrating the other night because I just wanted to just pick a random video, but it was just giving me, oh, you want more restaurants? Here's more restaurants. And it's like, this is so fucking bad. But in other areas, that what it serves up can influence like real world spaces. And he talks about how the Instagram aesthetic has changed the physical look and design of coffee shops all over the world to the point where they're all copying the same fucking design. Just a really, really fascinating set of observations in that book and this conversation. I hope I hope people enjoyed it. Yeah, sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward to listening to it. And I've got to say, people really should, if you haven't heard it, uh, check out our last uh, bonus content episode uh, <laughs> from this week with returning guest Liv Agar. It's I don't know. I don't I don't recall laughing so much on on any of our most recent episodes. It's been so fucking grim, and obviously yeah. there's a, still all kinds of horrifying things happening in in Gaza and with the expanding regional conflict and with Joe Biden's like uh, draconian right wing immigration bill that he's trying to to uh, you know give the Republicans everything they're asking for. I mean, all kinds of things that are so depressing, but. It was a very fun and enjoyable conversation with Liv. We talked a lot about the the Apple Vision Pro and its uh, its its usefulness or non usefulness to the gooning community, and it was a wild one. And I really recommend if people didn't hear it to check that one out. If you're not a subscriber to the Insurgents podcast, 
Uh, you can subscribe over at insurgentspod.com to get access to that and a whole many, many other uh, really awesome uh, bonus episodes. But that was that was a fun one, definitely. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, your point about not laughing is that that hard on episodes in recent past. Like, I don't know if I've laughed that hard on an episode that we've done in four <laughs> yeah. years. Yeah. Like there's a she's lot of so goddamn funny. Oh yeah. yeah. She, I think she just brings out like a mischievous, uh, <laughs> personality trait in both of us. It's just yeah. like, I'm letting loose on this one because lives here. It was, it was a ton of fun. Uh, insurgentspod.com. If you can subscribe, we greatly appreciate it. You have kept the show going for four years we can't thank you enough. It's our absolute pleasure to do this, and we hope to do it for for many, many more. Absolutely. You want to get to this uh, get to this interview? I'm looking forward to listening to it. Yes, absolutely. My conversation with Kyle Cheka, author of Filter World, is coming up right after this. Now I'm joined by Kyle Cheka, author of the new book, Filter World, How Algorithms Flattened Culture. I really enjoyed this one. I would highly recommend everyone go check it out. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Of course. So before we get started, I have to ask you a question that we ask almost all of our guests, barring some... Uh, context and in conversations that might be a bit too heavy, but I think this is a good one. Kyle, are you a gamer? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think deep in my soul, I am a gamer. Like I grew up playing video games. I grew up, you know, having Super Nintendo, etc. But now, I mean, now my gaming is limited to basically Nintendo Switch and like the the same few franchises that I've been playing since I was a kid. So I was just picking back up uh, Tears of the Kingdom, the the great Zelda game, uh, for the past few days, just as a way of decompressing from my book tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a common one, and I mm. find that people who work in media and have incredibly busy schedules always say, I mean, not always, but often say they pick up Zelda. And they, when they answer that question, it is one of the Zelda games on Switch, mm. which is I, I something I want to think about a bit more. Why? Why is it that game? Why is it that franchise? And why that platform? Maybe mm. it's the accessibility. Yeah, I mean, there's a nostalgia for it, I think. Like Zelda, you know, top-down Zelda RPGs are some of the first games that I really felt immersed in and felt like, you know, was a different kind of experience for me. Um, and also I think, I don't know, I'm really bad at first person shooters. <laughs> like I don't, I don't find them relaxing certainly. And I'm just not like my reflexes are not there. So I think the switch Zelda games are kind of at the high end of my real time fighting video game capability. So I can definitely handle that. Um, I think they're pretty easy to pick up and put down. I love that the Switch is portable. Like, I, I think I mostly play it on portable. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just feels... It's like a soothing environment in a way. Like, particularly Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. A lot of it is just, like, exploring 
a natural space and like seeing what happens and running around playing with stuff. So it's pretty low pressure. Admittedly, that's not a game that I've played. I, I, for some reason, even when I had an N64 and Ocarina of Time was just like the biggest game, I never got into it. And I don't know why. Um, and I always tell myself, I'm going to go back. I'm going to play, I'm going to play some of these. I'm going to play Breath of the Wild. And I just, I haven't gotten around to it. I don't know why. I think it's, it wouldn't be too hard to jump into. Though now it kind of feels like, it's like if you haven't seen the latest Hollywood blockbuster, like maybe it's too late. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, everyone's more. already moved on from this discussion. And, you know, I'm not going to go back and rewatch Avengers Endgame or something. Like I've, <laughs> yeah. I've missed the moment on this piece of culture. But I just think they're fun games and like gaming i think like gaming culture is often so high pressure and so much about like the latest thing or what's popular right now and i think there's a lot of like pleasure in just playing these games that like haven't necessarily changed that much they're like very familiar it's not competitive like you're not fighting it out with other people on the internet <laughs> yeah that that's something and this is this would totally contrast with with gaming culture because everyone wants to brag about beating a game's story on the hardest difficulty. And over the past several years, I've really come to a point of acceptance where I don't need to do that because it was just frustrating. And this should be a time of enjoyment in my day. So I'm I am pro easiest difficulty. I want the story and I want to be part of it. But I don't need to be frustrated. I don't need to lose a, a battle a hundred times in yeah, a row before yeah. advancing. There's a spectrum of like what's what's the the Dark Souls games that are like so yeah. difficult. And I mean, I've watched friends just like die twenty times in a row, like on the same thing. And I could I don't have the the patience for that. But then I, I played that platforming game Celeste. Uh, a few years back and that's like a 2d side-scrolling platformer that's an indie game with like an interesting story and nice mechanics and it's hard like the jumping is hard but it's hard in the way that like the original mario games were hard like you have to have the right timing have the right reflexes and that's like a difficulty that i can handle yeah the the games that are advertised is there's no instructions there you have to find your own way and it's deliberately difficult is so unappealing to me i just i just give me the give me the easy seamless frictionless experience going through this story that i want to experience and i want to understand i want to see what they create like last of us is like the best example of this give me the easiest difficulty because i really hear i hear the story's fantastic and i want to see it Mm -hmm. yeah that's like the interactive movie version where it's like okay I'm, I'm playing a game it's a new and different form of experience and yet i still want to experience a great narrative and be invested in the characters without having to die a dozen times on whatever <laughs> zombie fight that i'm like i don't have the right bullets for or whatever like <laughs> i don't know i'm not usually in it for the puzzle solving like if a puzzle gets too hard I'm, i tend to be like no i'm over this i'm gonna look up the game facts or whatever <laughs> like uh, i do appreciate that though as a you know as an 
not so committed gamer like you can look up anything online now there's a youtube video for every little zelda problem that you have <laughs> if, yep. if it's too frustrating you can just go and someone has solved it for you already <laughs> absolutely uh, let, let's get into the book so filter world I, I i finished it last week and this is one of those books that just has kept me thinking about it the content in it what you wrote about, what you thought about, how you thought through it. And what I really appreciate about this book is it's not just, here's a list of all the problems. Because I think so often, especially in tech books, it's, hey, here's a problem, and here's a few examples of the problem. <laughs> you, you took it a step further, which I just really always appreciate in, in books. It's, let's think through what this looks like. Let's think through what the consequences are. So could you tell people, what is Filter World as you describe it? What does that mean to us as, a, as internet users? Filter World was my word for kind of the internet as, as, as it exists now, which is basically an immersive bubble <laughs> surrounding you of all of these digital platforms that we exist on the algorithmic feeds that deliver us content, the recommendations that are constantly bombarding us. So I, I wanted a word for how we are surrounded by digital systems that are constantly guessing what we want, like what we want to see, what we want to hear, what we want to read, <laughs> what we're going to type next into our, into our Gmail window. Um, and I think those recommendations and those constant suggestions and kind of passive feeding of content have really changed how we experience the internet, but also how we experience all forms of culture, whether it's design or music or, you know, visual arts or even which restaurants we go to. I think so many of our behaviors at this point, uh, after the decade of the 2010s are now driven by digital platforms in a way that just wasn't true before. So this is, filter world is kind of the era it's the it's the way of living that we are immersed in right now you're somebody who th thinks and appreciate thinks deeply and appreciates art and culture and the uniqueness that pieces of art have and I, I, so often throughout this book you you talk about how excited you are when you find different pieces of art or different songs or something totally unique that isn't just following what the current trend is. Was there something about the change, like this uniformity and the homogeneity you started to see in all these different aspects of our culture that motivated you to write this? I think I was bored. <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> boredom is a, is a big motivator for me in my life, I would say, but I was, I mean, I was just struck by how so much culture now is dominated by a few specific trends or modes of, of being. So I think I noticed first how Instagram was really shaping how physical spaces were being decorated. Like you can think of Instagram walls and like selfie murals and also just the kind of generic Instagram aesthetic that we all recognize with minimalist backdrops and pastel colors and you know ceramic vases with succulents in them like there's there's an aesthetic that we associate with instagram and there's also an aesthetic of music that we associate with spotify or youtube streams like a kind of innocuous ignorable lo-fi chill hip-hop beats to relax slash study to as i'm sure many people are are familiar with 
Um, so I began to notice how each of these platforms kind of generated a form of culture that seemed to work on them. And that kind of culture became unavoidable. Like you can also think of TikTok and music right now where producers and musicians are really molding what they make so that it works on TikTok. Like you pack in every sound into 10 seconds and you pray that, you know, millions of people will start using your little clip as the backdrop to their own videos. And that's kind of the metric of success for music right now. So I think what I was observing was how much digital platforms are motivating particular ways of creating and also ways of consuming. And that was leading toward this kind of boredom or homogeneity that that became a source of anxiety for me. You mentioned you've talked in other interviews as well about this this coffee shop problem. Could you describe what you what you've seen as this Instagram coffee shop that started to proliferate around the world? Yeah, this <laughs> I kind of think of it as it's like my Moby Dick or something, like the generic coffee shop problem. Um, but it, I originally started noting that noticing this around 2015, 2016. And this was a period where I was working as a freelance journalist. I was traveling a lot for work, you know, to different countries to do stories. And I had this experience over and over again, where first I would find an Airbnb in a given city, whether that was like Reykjavik or Los Angeles or Berlin or Beijing or Kyoto. I would find an Airbnb that was like a nice minimalist white walled space where I could stay for that trip and then I would also find a coffee shop in that neighborhood that had the same exact decoration wherever I went it had subway tiles on the walls it had the succulents and ceramic vessels it had reclaimed wood furniture you could buy avocado toast and a cappuccino with latte art and this was just a template this seemed to be repeated in whatever country I was in regardless of geography regardless of its location regardless of like the history of that place and I was curious why that had happened. Like this was not a Starbucks situation where a corporate parent was demanding that all of these cafes look the same. It was all of these different cafe owners deciding organically that this was how they wanted their coffee shop to look. Uh, and eventually I kind of traced that flatness back to Instagram and back to the expansion of these digital platforms that were suddenly connecting so many more people around the world. Like, I mean, I have a chapter in the book called Algorithmic Globalization. And I think essentially Instagram and TikTok and Facebook have really globalized our lives on, a, on an individual level where I can now follow like a barista in China or a cafe owner in Japan or, you know, a coffee roaster in Iceland with the same granularity as if they were my neighbor. <laughs> and that has created this whole different web of influences and trends that we've never experienced before. I, I, I don't know. Is it, a, is it an issue of people not realizing that this is just, this is boring, this is all the same, or is it just that people are convinced through seeing this type of aesthetic constantly that this is the way things should be? Why aren't we demanding as individuals something different? Why why are we accepting this this redundancy? Mm, it's a really good question. I mean, I think this ecosystem, like filter world, has kind of developed over the 2010s. And I almost think of it like a frog in boiling water thing, like if that if that archetype is even true. Like 
we've slowly and slowly become so immersed in algorithmic recommendations and in these digital platforms that we don't really realize how much they influence. Like it's only when we step back, as I try to do in this book, that we realize just how much all of our decisions and all of our tastes and all of our like aesthetics that we notice are driven by these feeds. Um, so it's like, it's a matter of time in a way. I think we've slowly become accustomed to it. And now we're realizing that it's, that it's very boring and destructive in a way. And I think, I mean, you do have to step back and have that self-awareness and then really think about what you like, like really think about your personal tastes and what you are feeling in order to realize that this might be boring. And I think what a lot of algorithmic feeds and digital platforms do is condition you into being a very passive consumer to like not think about what you're seeing or reading or listening to like to just flip to the next video or hear the next automated song. And so it's only when you try to stop being so passive that you realize that maybe it's like not as interesting or not as compelling as you might have thought it was. On the recommendations point, you, you, you spend some time in this book talking about recommendation algorithms on different platforms. Mm -hmm. The one that I have, because of this book, because you forced me to recognize it and think about it, I realized last night how god awful my YouTube recommendations had become. <laughs> so a few days ago, I wanted to watch a couple. They mentioned I had moved to LA recently, so my fiance and I have been looking at different videos. Like, what are the best restaurants in LA? And now the entire algorithm was just food videos. It's like I don't want to watch this right now. This sucks. And it wasn't just that; it was some of the same videos in every category. It was just here's this video, and then here it is, like three rows down again. And so I had to go in and delete every all my like search history, my watch history to try to reset it. So I, I appreciate thank for even forcing me to think about it rather than just mindlessly clicking through to these videos. But the, there is no real curation in these no. types of per recommendation algorithms. And through YouTube and and Netflix, we see how they try to make it look personalized. But really, it's just pushing what the platform's priorities are. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that noticing that where YouTube will put the same video in like multiple categories as if to keep trying to convince you to watch it or it's like, or the same thing happens on Netflix. It's like recommendations for you, top 10, like relevant videos, and it's all the same stuff. It's like, so what, what are you actually taking into account here? And basically that algorithm is so simple or so like the, the, the variable there that it's fundamentally taking into account is that you watched a bunch of food videos. Therefore you want more food videos. If like, if you like this, then you will like 10 more of that same thing. That's like the golden rule of algorithmic feeds, but that's not true. <laughs> like that's, I, I have the same problem with my TikTok feed where I love cooking videos. I love food and cooking videos, but if I watch too many of them, the algorithm is like, oh, so you only want to see food videos, which is not true. It's actually disgusting to, to flip through 30 food videos at once. Like it, it will make you never want to eat again. <laughs> and so it's yeah. like, like it just shows so, so blatantly how these recommendations don't prioritize variety or a surprise or like some creative suggestion that you might not have expected it's just like more of the same over and over and over again there's this phrase uh 
coined by an academic, I'm blanking on the name, but I cite it in the book uh, called Corrupt Personalization. And I found that very useful because that refers to the kind of facade of personalization without the reality of it, like YouTube trying to sell you the same video in multiple categories. Like that's not actually a personal recommendation based on, you know, the entire history of your watch habits. That's just like a very simple, you like food videos. So here's more food videos. And Netflix does the same thing when it pushes like its own properties in the for you category or, you know, tries to arrange things just there's a system like Netflix changes the thumbnails of the films and TV shows it offers you based on what it thinks you will engage with. So it might try to almost trick you by masking a sports documentary as a romantic comedy or vice versa. Like I think a lot of personalization is actually corrupt in that way. It's, it's showing us the image of something custom based on your own taste, but actually it's just, you know, what fodder is most convenient for that company? What's going to be most profitable? I, it was something that I noticed a couple months ago, this personalized tiles on Netflix. And I can't remember what, what movie or TV show, but it featured somebody that was an extreme, I had, had having already seen it, I knew this character was our, like a super minor player in this movie, but they were in a movie that I had just watched. And I thought that was like, I was so confused wow. why. And I never really thought into it more until I, I read this. And you talk about the study where their framing is like a, like a really sports heavy guy versus like a romantic comedy, these two user profiles with their interests. And the same thing would just be give like it was a mystery show or something. One tile was a romantic embrace for the rom-com person. And the other tile was surfers. And I just thought that it was so deceptive and it just kind it's of strips so away the thought and intent and creative process that even goes into creating a cover or art or a poster. Like there, that is part of the entire creative package for a film or TV show. Right. It's just so bizarre. Yeah. And it speaks to, I mean, how content has to be molded to appear certain ways on a platform. Like, I mean, you can kind of see the same thing with YouTube thumbnails where like a YouTube thumbnail is designed to attract your attention on YouTube specifically. Like it's not, it's certainly not, it's an artful form, but it's not like a movie poster. It's not like supposed to be creatively inspiring. It's actually like one of the ugliest kinds of images that you can possibly imagine, <laughs> but it works on YouTube because all you're seeing is this like little tiny thumbnail and it just has to attract you enough to click on it once. Um, so it really shows I mean, it demonstrates just how much you have to, a piece of content has to be packaged for you to engage with it. And even if the artist or the creator isn't packaging it in that way intentionally, the platform itself will like repackage and represent that creation in a context that might be completely the opposite of what it was meant as. Like, I think in filter worlds, like a lot of, a lot of creative intention is actually undermined by these platforms like it doesn't matter what the creator wants it's not about the artist's intention it's just about what works for the platform i really want to get into the music point but there's there's something that you said that's about the consequences right these tiles and how like you mentioned like the youtube thumbnails and how it strips away the intentionality it incentivizes people to just copy what they see is working mm -hmm. and uh, I just I because you said that I just like can't stop thinking about and I have been thinking about since I finished this book 
just the consequences in the long run for art, for creativity, for culture, even though people might not see what people put on the internet as holding the same weight as an album or a movie or a, you know, a painting or a sculpture, like it still is contributing to a broader creative ecosystem. And I think there's a real danger in the long run if we don't address what is becoming just incentives, financial, personal, whatever, that just encourage people to continue to make derivative works of what they're seeing in like the most vapid possible way. I think it's certainly true. Unfortunately, like I wish this was not the case, but I do think there's so much pressure on creators of content on the internet to copy what is already working and to mold what they do in the image of what everyone else is doing. But I think you can really see that with the homogeneity of influencer accounts like we all have this archetypal influencer in our heads that like looks a certain way does certain activities photographs themselves in a particular way like participates in every viral trends that they can get their hands on um and it just becomes a repetitive meme almost like rather than creating a unique expression of your own personal creativity it's just about filling in the blanks and like copying the the meme that you've already seen and i encountered this recently with um pack with me videos so it's like a genre of video of someone you know packing their suitcase for a trip or something but i was just curious about this genre so i looked up the hashtag on tiktok and it's just dozens and dozens and dozens of videos from different people from unique individual humans but they all look exactly the same It's like the same top-down shot of the suitcase. It's the same packing items. It's like the same bedroom environments even. And it's just like, how how did all of our individual lives become so flattened into the same visual language and tropes that we just broadcast over the internet? Like it's quite quite stultifying in a way. It's like you you just want to shake these people and be like, can't you? Just like make your own video, <laughs> shoot this in a different way, try something, try something new. <laughs> There's a clash between the vulnerability that people feel putting themselves out there and you have that on one side and then the incentive of, of knowing, oh, well, hey, look, this is probably the safest way of going about this and the platform already promotes it. So why should I try something new? And I don't think they realize that in that vulnerability could be something even more fulfilling, something even more creative or interesting. I just, I, I understand why people are inclined to go with the safer option, but I don't think they think through the consequences, which is really sad. Particularly the long-term consequences. I mean, if you are following what everyone else is doing and if everyone else is kind of following this net average that works on the internet, then we're not going to get anywhere new. Like taking a risk is very vulnerable. Like you have to, be confident in it. You have to really understand what you're doing and and make intentional decisions. But it is the only way that we get somewhere different in our culture. (laughs) Like, Like culture, I think, is driven by innovation and newness and surprise and challenge. It's not just about reiterating generic tropes. And so we need, like, we need to encourage people to accept that vulnerability and take more risks and kind of go outside the tropes of the system. But there's so little incentive to do that when these platforms dominate so much of how attention is distributed 
and how people make money. Like it's also financially risky to not just copy what everyone else is doing and make the thing that succeeds on a platform. Like it's, it can be a death sentence. Like you don't want to be too different because otherwise the, the feed is not going to promote your work and then you're going to have a harder time making a living. So it's, there's a lot of pressure and I think it's really hard to get outside of it. You describe a few different ways that Spotify and its algorithm has shaped music. One, you talk about how it's pushing artists and, and pushes songs from artists that are more generic and similar sounding to others. Yeah. And the other, which is, I think is really dangerous. It's leading to a shorter average playtime per song. Could you could you talk about both of these problems? Because these, I think, are, are really alarming. It's it's so true. I mean, there's an infamous quote by Daniel Ack, the CEO of Spotify, that he once said, okay, musicians can't just release an album every few years now. Like, you have to produce stuff continuously. Like, we musicians should be content creators. And that's like, no. Like, you, that might be good for you, Daniel Ack, and Spotify. But that is not, like, an artistic statement that's not like you will be more creatively fulfilled if you put out more content um so it's just to say spotify really does impact culture in a way that they are aware of and intentionally do um but for the first example i spoke to uh, a member of the band's galaxy 500 which is a kind of new wave bands from the 80s um and they had one of their songs go really viral on spotify they noticed that streams of the song were just like going through the roof and all of their other songs were not <laughs> like it was just the line was going straight up. Um, and what they eventually figured out was that the algorithmic recommendations on Spotify were promoting that song more than their other songs because that song didn't actually sound like their own music. <laughs> like this song was the most average in a way, the most like other songs and when I talked to uh, this band member, he kind of said, oh, well, we made that song ironically. Like it was supposed to be ironically like other music. Like the normalcy of it was sarcastic. But Spotify has no way of registering that creative intention. Like it just promoted that song to, to many, many more people. And in a way that could be good. Like sure, you're getting more streams and you're making money from this. Sadly, it's not that much money. Yeah, it's like but dozens it, of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like, uh, you know, maybe 13 grand or something. But the the popularity of that song distorts the entire creative perception of that band. Like, it, they are not choosing how to present themselves on Spotify. They're not choosing what the algorithm promotes. So instead, the song that makes them seem like maybe a more normal band than they are or misrepresents their music is becoming more popular. Um, so Spotify promotes that kind of averageness in a way, like it promotes a song that can fit next to as many other songs as possible in the automated playlist. And I think that's the same force that's behind song lengths getting shorter as well. It's because when you put a really long song in a playlist, like that's an aggressive choice. It's going to disrupt the flow of the music. You might more easily get bored of it you might be more likely to switch to the next track. And so I think the Spotify recommendations really deprioritize long songs. And that kind of pressure has led artists to, to make their songs shorter so that they fit better within the Spotify architecture. Um, and just from personal experience, 
I didn't really realize it till I was writing the book. But when Spotify radio is playing just its automated recommendations, I've almost never gotten a song that's above like three or four minutes. And I listen to a lot of, you know, some classical music or long jazz compositions that are 10, 15 minutes even, but Spotify will never recommend this. Like it will never choose to put one on. And that's such a strange phenomenon. Like a lot of music is long. (laughs) Like a lot of great music are 10 or 15 minute tracks, but Spotify is never going to promote that because it might alienate the listener and cause them to turn it off. And so that kind of music just becomes invisible or harder to find or less promoted. The the metric that you talk about for monetization on Spotify is that it counts a, a listen as 30 seconds mm-hmm. of a song, which if you start from the beginning, <laughs> beginning of a song, maybe you'll get through the first verse. Maybe you'll get to the chorus, but sometimes not. I just think that was such a, a rigid like kind of absurd metric to count. I I guess the you do want shorter. There's, there's, you can can see it either way. There's benefits for the artist to having a play count shorter, especially since Mm. the payouts are already so stingy, but how they see it and how it's determined with there's there's a song that I've been listening to recently by this band called the oceans, like a German progressive metal band. And you don't get to the, like the first chorus for like three or four minutes and I really appreciate that about that song because it's like it's a whole journey. Yeah. Spotify, of course, would never recommend that song to me. I heard about it from a friend, but also just like the way they see and analyzed, analyze music and song metrics just seems so rigid. Yeah. And how you measure something has a real impact on how it works, right? Like, yeah, like if there's no incentive to have a song be longer than 30 seconds in a way, or if the first 30 seconds is all that matters in terms of how you make money, then that's going to be what you focus on. I think it's the same with TikTok. Like the first 10 seconds are the most important because that's what determines, are you going to skip to the next video or not? Um, So I think it is about like how we measure something affects how it exists and affects how people create more of it in the future. There's another streaming service called Adagio, which is only classical music. So it's it's more focused. It's like a kind of boutique system. But the way they count listens is just the percentage of time on your account that you've spent listening to a particular like musician or label, essentially. So say, you know, I listen to Deutsche Grammophon for 40% of my time on that platform. of my subscription revenue is going to go to that label. So it's not just about like one 30 second play. It's about literally what percentage of time are you spending of your full time with one label versus another. And I think that's like a much more fair or accurate representation of, of what you're actually listening to. Not just like, did you go through the first 30 seconds or not? Throughout this book, you, you write about the decline of taste and I think that's like one of the more defining uh, narratives and, and arcs in this book. Could you describe what you mean by how taste is is vanishing, in, especially in filter world? Taste to me, I mean, taste often gets a bad rap. <laughs> like when you say taste, it kind of comes off as elitist or like I'm judging if you have good or bad taste. 
the taste to me is just what are your preferences? Like what, what do you like in a certain area of culture? What do you not like? What speaks to you versus what doesn't speak to you? So I think we all have taste in everything. Like we know what music we like. We know what we don't like. We know what art we find appealing. And in some areas we have less educated or informed taste than others, right? Like I know more about visual art than I know about punk music or metal, for example. So I don't have informed taste in that. But at the same time, I still have preferences and I can still think about what I'm consuming. So I think in filter world and under the influence of these algorithmic feeds, we're discouraged from thinking about what we like and like digging into our own preferences and what different things make us feel in favor of just following what recommendations are given to us. So like we're turned into passive consumers where what our taste is, is just what gets recommended to us. Like we base our identities in a way on what the algorithm makes of us rather than building up a deeper like self perception or like image of yourself as a consumer and knowing that you like metal music and you like long songs. I think we too often we allow these platforms and these feeds to to drive our tastes rather than trying to get outside of them and figure out, you know, what what is truly inspiring us in a given moment. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that you forced me to acknowledge these things that I've noticed or seen or experienced, but really couldn't put my finger on. I think you did just such a great job with that. I would really encourage everyone to pick Filter World up. Is there something that you were thinking about or that you saw that didn't make it into the book? Was there something that's been bothering you that could have fit in, but maybe got cut for space? Well, I think, I mean, <laughs> as I, as I finished the book and like, as I've been talking about it with people, I almost wish I went farther. <laughs> like, yeah. like I, in the book, it, the book is quite critical of our technological ecosystem and how the internet works and stuff. But I almost think it's worse <laughs> than I presented it. Like, like, I think there is an urgency in this moment to all of us, not just listening to Spotify radio, <laughs> like to not just consuming the next YouTube video or TikTok video. I think like if anything, I wish I had pushed people more to be like, get off your phone, close your laptop, go to a record store, go to an art gallery, like look at what is around you that is not, just about what's getting recommended in a given moment and see how it makes you feel <laughs> like, like get outside of this ecosystem, think about what you like and what makes you feel something not about what's making you hit the like button on TikTok. Uh, so I don't know. I want that like rousing manifesto to come through in a way. Like I <laughs> just go try something else. Like I promise it's, it's going to be good for you. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think we could all benefit from spending a little less time online. Definitely. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people pick up a copy of Filter World? Where's the recommended? Is it bookshop.org? Yeah, bookshop.org <laughs> is great. platform was best? Well, you know, everything has to fight its way through the algorithmic ecosystem, and Amazon controls a lot of that. So if you buy it on Amazon, I'm not going to blame you. But if you do, you should rate it five stars, because <laughs> it's like 
it's like an Uber driver. Like I need the high ratings. Um, but yeah, bookshop.org is great. I think the best thing to do in terms of getting out of the feeds is like, go call up your local bookstore, ask if they have it. If they don't have it, tell them to order it. And that will create a human connection in your community that did not exist before. And that will be great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, this was really fun.